Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you. To tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. Good evening, I'm Stephen Dubner, and this is Tell Me Something I Don't Know, recorded live tonight at Joe's Pub in New York City. We have got a crowd full of smart people, and we will bring them on stage to tell us something interesting or puzzling, maybe even amazing. If it all goes as planned, we'll all be a bit smarter by the time we're through. Joining me tonight as co-host is the Atlantic contributing editor and CBS This Morning Saturday co-anchor, Alex Wagner. It is a pleasure to be here. Aloha, Stephen. Aloha. Alex, let's see what we know about you so far. We know that you grew up in Washington, D.C. in what I would call a professionally democratic household. (laughs) We know that besides co-hosting CBS This Morning Saturday... You co-host the Radio Atlantic podcast, and you cohabit and co-parent a new baby (laughs) with your husband, Sam Cass, who's a former White House chef for President Obama. We also know, Alex, that you worked for George Clooney's anti-genocide organization, and that Vogue magazine called you delightfully profane, so I'm looking forward to that. And Alex (laughs) Wagner, why don't you... This is an explicit podcast, is it not? You know, we we have to pay... I should have checked. You know that little red E with a square? You know how much that costs to put that on iTunes? Well, a f***ing lot. Okay. um, You're welcome, Stephen. Let's just be passing the hat for the (laughs) E-rating. Yep. So, Alex Wagner, why don't we begin by you telling us something we don't know about you, please? In second grade, everyone, uh, all the kids in the class had drawn pictures of what they wanted to be when they grew up. My mom and dad, professional Democrats, as you call them, said, oh, and what does Alex want to be? Surely it's president of the United States or astronaut. And my second grade teacher looked and said, well, actually, your daughter said she'd like to be a makeup artist. Oh. <laughs> what happened there? Why didn't you become that? You know, I learned that I hate makeup, as mm. it turns out, which is why yep. television is a weird profession <laughs> for me. Alex Wagner, very happy to have you here tonight. Happy to be here. Let's explain how it works. Guests will come on stage to tell us some interesting fact or idea or story about a topic of their choosing. Then Alex and I will hear them out, we'll ask some questions, and then our live audience will vote for a winner. The vote is based on three simple criteria. Number one, did they tell us something we truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? Since truth is kind of, sort of important. We've got on stage tonight a real live human fact checker. Please welcome the much beloved A.J. Jacobs. A.J. is the author of five wonderful books, including the forthcoming It's All Relative Adventures Up and Down the World's Family Tree. A.J., can you give us a fun fact from the new book? Uh, Well, Stephen, as you may know, most of us have Neanderthal ancestors. Uh, Speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Are you denied? Don't deny it. Be proud. The the Neanderthals and Homo sapiens mixed it up way back when. So your great, 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 great times 15,000 or so grandma and grandpa were a Neanderthal. And my favorite fact about grandma and grandpa Neanderthal is they're not as dumb as you think. Don't believe the stereotypes. Uh, in fact, according to scientists, Neanderthals, they likely have the gift of speech, 
and apparently had a high-pitched, raspy voice like Julia Child. That's literally the description, like Could Julia, Julia Child. Could Julia Child have actually been a Neanderthal? That's a good I'm question. I'm just asking for a we friend. Gotta, we got to get her DNA. Uh, well, AJ, uh, thanks for Neanderthal facts. Thanks for being here tonight. I'm excited to play our little game show together. Let's start. Would you please welcome our first guest? Her name is Sam Garwin. Hey, Sam, what do you do? I am a butcher and the CEO of Fleischer's Craft Butchery here in New York City. Excellent. All right, Sam, so I'm ready. So are Alex Wagner and AJ Jacobs. What do you know that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? Well, I have a hypothetical. You're looking to shop at a whole animal butcher shop. Maybe it's Fleischer's. Maybe it's one of the other butcher shops we have in New York. You walk in to this whole animal butcher shop and you're in the mood for beef. Which cut do you think the butcher really, really wants you to stock up your refrigerator with? So which cut does, should we assume it's something either very expensive or something from maybe a body part that not a lot of people want to put in their mouths? I can't confirm or deny your assumptions. You you can't, yeah. No. Mm -hmm. And we're assuming this is a cow. This is, yeah, beef. We're talking beef right now. Um, now, let me ask you, is that a whole animal butcher shop? Is that what you called it? Mm-hmm. So that's a thing? And what does that mean? Yeah, well, you know, in the 50s when, when farms were told to really get big or get out, yeah. there was um, a shift in the way butcher shops operated. So it used to be that a butcher shop would work with farmers and people would have rails where the whole animals came in and then they'd be broken down. And now there are very few number of butcher shops or even companies that operate that way. But a whole animal butcher shop would be considered um, an operation that really goes direct to the farm and purchases from the farmer and units of whole animals, and that's how the farmer sells. And the bigger bigger distribution system then is, I want a thousand pounds of X and zero pounds of Y. Correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me just, what's the shelf life for a cow carcass? Interestingly, the longer you leave something as a whole piece, the longer you can go without actually turning it into something else. So right. that's what dry aging is. Yeah, can you explain? I've always wondered about that. Because if I hang up a, a chicken breast the way oh, that you don't, hang up... Don't, <laughs> don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, don't, that's not, don't do that. And are there other meats? Or, I guess pork, right? You dry age pork or you... There are some people in the culinary world who are playing around with aging pork and aging lamb. In my experience in the butcher shops that I have worked in, it's not a good idea. They're um, crazy. It doesn't age the same way, and I, I honestly don't know the science behind it, but it, it gets um, kind of like tacky and slimy and smells weird. So ideally, when you are properly dry aging something, you put it in refrigeration that also has really, really great airflow. And if you're getting very fancy about it, you might have salt or you might actually put a bacterial culture into the walk-in refrigerator where you have that, just like you might do it with a cheese or something like that, kind of like a starter culture. And And it can sit there for ever? Not forever. The oldest piece of meat I have ever had the questionable pleasure of eating was was 365 days old all right so so um the question was what kind of meat or what cut in a whole animal butcher shop we think the butcher would most likely want us to buy right okay so why don't you tell us the answer because we're not getting there so the answer is ground beef which is really not glamorous uh, to most people but 
um, when you are a whole animal butcher shop or a whole animal company, there's this concept of carcass balancing. And actually the entire... Carcass balancing? Mm -hmm. That's a phrase that we use. Balancing. That sounds like a Cirque du Soleil move. Yes. (laughs) So... Does this mean that they direct cows to gain more weight in certain spots and others before they kill them, or this is, happens after the killing? This is an after-the-killing thing. I mean, there definitely are people who focus on genetics, but actually the entire meat industry is trying to carcass balance. Because if you think about it, on a single cow, there's only so many steaks. So you're talking like 16 ribeyes, 10 New York strips, two whole tenderloins, two flanks, two skirts, basically two of every steak except for the hanger. There's only one hanger. Um, and then the rest is braising cuts, um, roasts, and ground beef. So if you're sourcing an entire animal for your butcher shop, you actually have to move those parts kind of in, in equilibrium. You have to make sure that you're using up the ground beef at the same rate that you are moving steaks. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a big pile of ground beef, and that's when it's time to have a freezer sale or make chili. Dare I ask... When we talk about ground beef, does that come from specific parts of the animal? It depends. I mean, the the most basic way to think about ground beef is just the lean to fat ratio, but it could come from any muscle on the animal. So, for example, the shank meat, your calf muscle, very, very tough. So there's a trade-off always between how much a muscle has been used and how tough it's going to be, but the tougher it is, also the more flavor it's going to have. So that's the reason that... You know, a tenderloin's great. You can cook it in five minutes. You can cut it with a fork, but it's never going to have the same flavor as a pot roast, which you have to cook low and slow for six hours. There's also little bits and pieces that you can't turn into a steak. Some of us are steak, some of us are ground beef, but we all belong in this world. (laughs) You call it a cow? Well, a a cow technically is a female. Yeah. We would call it a beef animal, maybe. You call it a beef animal? I don't know. I don't know. Well, once it's dead, it's beef. Once it's dead, it's beef. We would call it a beef. Like, honestly, you might might say a beef or something like that. So you get 16 ribeyes, you said, right? Right. So just like humans, you have ribs. And so that's where the ribeyes come from. So if you cut them by hand in between each rib, you end up with eight of them per per side. Um, If you cut them on a bandsaw and you cut them to a specific thickness, you could get a few more, a few less. So here's my question. I can understand that ground beef is less expensive than steaks because there's apparently a lot of it, right? And also people may prefer steaks. But if there are 16 at least ribeyes in a beef and there are only like two flanks, two skirts, and one hanger... I know those have gotten more expensive lately. They've become more in demand lately. But for a long time, those were really cheap. Why would ribeyes be relatively more abundant than those and yet also relatively more expensive, at least in the past? Right. So there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that these days a lot of ribeyes are dry-aged. It's one of the few pieces of meat that you can do that with because you dry-age the whole rack of ribs. Then if you cut some off the edges, you're still left with a decent piece of meat and it's aged. There's another piece of it, which is uh, how many bone-in cuts there are. So yeah, there are tons of steaks, and these days you can get more and more cuts from the shoulder, which we love to do at our butcher shops, but there's not very many that have bones in them that you can then put on the grill. To that end, how many like pounds of ground beef do you get from the average cow? At least 200. Whoa! Wowzer! No wonder you're trying to shovel it out the door. That's mm-hmm. a lot of yeah. a lot of burger. Now, it's is this why when you go to kind of farm to tabley restaurants, you see a lot of grass fed burger and not a lot of grass fed steak? Absolutely. So there really is no 
boxed meat supply chain right now for pasture-raised animals. There's pretty much, if you want a pasture-raised animal, you have to either get it directly from the farmer or seek out one of these small butcher shops. So if you're a restaurant, it's the same deal. Either you go directly to the farmer and then you're on the hook for balancing the carcass, which nobody wants to do with a notable exception of Gramercy Tavern here in New York City. They actually buy whole animals and Spread um, it to their different restaurants, or no? They use it all in house. Within the restaurant, they, they use it all at Gramercy. They special the steaks, so you will never see a steak listed on their menu because each server has different steaks that they. No way. Yes. Each server in the restaurant can offer a different part of the beef that night. <laughs> That's that right. That is pretty cool. So, okay, so if you're eating there, what do you ask for? What's your favorite part well, of the Well, you can't ask for it. You don't get to choose. Oh. It's, it's, if you get the server who has the hanger steak, you can order that. Oh, I see. You no get kidding. The server. All right, yeah. well, let's say you know which <laughs> server has which. I'm just asking you personally, oh, me personally. as the butcher. What's, basically, that was a terrible way of asking you, what's your favorite kind of beef to eat? <laughs> okay. Sam? Well, as, as a butcher at a whole animal shop, my answer has to be that different cuts are good for different things. Uh, so I have yeah. no true favorite, but I am a big fan of the flat iron steak, hmm. which is a cut from the shoulder. The point is that it is both um, tender and flavorful, and it's really thin. So it cooks super quickly, and I love it. You can dry age all of the cow, right? And, and, and to that end, why don't more people dry age other parts of the cow? So a lot of small butcher shops will hang their carcasses for one to two weeks before doing anything to it. And that helps firm up the meat because as it's hanging there, water will start to evaporate. And when the water evaporates, the flavor concentrates a little bit and then it also improves the texture. And so there's no reason you can't, but if you think about the big industrial beef operations, they're, you know, it's pennies that they're trying to get. So they actually are motivated very much to keep their weights up. So they want it to be as wet as possible. And so they've kind of invented this term of wet aging, which is when you take, yeah, it doesn't sound as good, Um, (laughs) where you take a cut of meat and as soon as you can, you vacuum seal it. And that way any, Mm. this is a really attractive word, but any purge that comes off of Mm. it is is kept in the bag and then the customer pays for that. Be a good name for a punk band, though. Beef Purge. It's so fascinating for you to bring your beefy knowledge to us. AJ, now, you've heard a lot from Sam about carcass balancing. Is there anything that you uh, need to flag or anything more you'd like to tell us? Yeah, just a couple of quick things. First, I looked it up. The gender-neutral noun is bovine. That covers cow or bull, so or a cow who identifies as a bull. So just (laughs) if you want to be safe. Hopefully, this imbalance will, will not be a problem in a few years because several teams of scientists are working on something called clean meat, cultured meat. But you take a cell from a cow and you create a hamburger or a steak, and it's actually coming quite soon in the next few years. And the amazing thing about this, you don't have to be restricted to cows or pigs. You could have rhinos, giraffes, mm. humans, ethical cannibalism. And... Another business idea, celebrity meat. So like a bad, fantastic burger. Neanderthal burgers for everyone. Uh, Sam Garwin, thank you so much for playing. Tell me thank something you. out now. Would you please welcome our next guest, Marco Hafner. All right, Marco, where are you from? What do you do? I'm a senior economist at RAND Europe, which is the European affiliate of the RAND Corporation. RAND, right, which is kind of like the CIA. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. And uh, 
you live you live where? I live in London, but originally I'm from Switzerland. Uh huh. Uh, and why are you in New York? I'm just visiting, yes. Ex extra for you, Stephen. Uh, it's the first time, actually, yes, for me in New York. Wow. So you're just another Swiss guy that works for a British branch of the CIA who comes to New York for his first and only time to be on a podcast. Right? Um, <laughs> what do you have to tell us tonight, Marco? So my question today is, um, across the U.S., the majority of middle and high schools start at 8 a.m. or earlier. So what would be the impact on the economy if schools would start later? Hmm. Impact on the economy if schools were to start later? I'm assuming we're talking about the parents of children who are going to school later and, and, and sort of how they would affect the economy. Not necessarily, no. Interesting. Now, we know, I've heard, and I have teenagers, so I hear it directly from them, that teenagers need more sleep because it's an intense physiological developmental stage, not an intense emotional developmental stage. Let me clarify, <laughs> but intense physiological. Um, so presumably, does it have something to do with that? Yes, you, you go to the right direction, something to do with sleep. And I'm assuming that sleep patterns established in adolescence have a long-term effect on productivity in adult uh, years. We're getting there. Very Swiss answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how we do things here, Marco. We, we just come out and say whatever no's. we're thinking, even if it's not based on fact. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I meant. Um, <laughs> all right, Alex, let's start with this. Let's narrow it down. Yeah. Do we think it's positive or negative? I'm assuming it's positive mm -hmm. if school started later, just because that's sort of where, where, where the trend is going in education, Here's right? Here's what I'm thinking, though. Let's say you get the teenagers up really early, and you get them off to school early, get them home by 2. If you get them in bed by 8, then they can't be out doing mayhem and destroying the economy. Or buying things. Uh, so that could have an adverse effect on the economy. Marco, I think Alex and I have reached an impasse here, and we'd love you to use your crafty Swiss knowledge to bring us out of it. So <laughs> you may have heard or you experienced yourself that teenagers have a different sleep-wake cycles compared to adults or young children. So... Based on that, and to accommodate the different sleep-wake cycles, major medical organizations recommend that middle and high schools don't start before 8.30 a.m. in the morning. Um, and beyond the health benefits of that, actually later school start time could have a very beneficial effect on the economy. So our own research shows that if nationwide schools would start at 8.30 a.m., that would add about $9 billion uh, dollars a year to the U.S. economy in terms of larger GDP. So to put that into perspective, that's roughly about the annual revenue of Major League Baseball. Hmm. Wow. Wait, it adds to GDP because teenagers sleep, they get more sleep, meaning they do better in school, and then that leads to increased productivity? That's the idea? Yes, they do better in school. So um, it has been found that one hour more of sleep uh, increases the probability of graduation or uh, attending college by somewhere between 8 to 13%. And plus, 
uh, a lack of sleep is heavily associated with car crashes. Uh, and uh, car crashes is, is one of the leading causes of death among American teenagers. And when you're dead, you can't contribute to the economy. Exactly. It's, it's difficult, <laughs> yes. That would also mean, presumably, teenagers, many of whom drive themselves to school, if they're going to school a little bit later, maybe that's also when congestion is generally less. And that might increase productivity for all those other people who are trying to get to work, or is that mm. not part of your... Um, we haven't looked at that, but definitely that could be one Check it out, would you, effect. Marco, and get back to us when you... Um... <laughs> I did read somewhere, because there is a movement to push for a later school start, that teenagers would just take advantage of that like they take advantage of so many other things, <laughs> and stay up even later. And so actually, they wouldn't accrue the sleep benefits, because they'd stay up till 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning, and then get up at 8 o'clock. Yes, yeah, a good point, but interestingly, uh, research shows that if school start times are delayed, teenagers get more sleep. The meets on average, they go to bed roughly at the same time, but they get up in the morning later. And actually, interestingly, they benefit from the better quality of sleep that it tends to come their way in the early hours of the morning. Hmm. And that means the school lets out a little bit later, right? Does that yes. have... Uh, do you lose the gains by having a later exit time? Uh, not necessarily. And also, it would leave you less time between school and after-school activities to smoke dope. <laughs> AJ Jacobs, uh, Marco Hafner has been telling us that starting school later would not only be kind of a more humane thing to do on some level, but would actually increase GDP. Does that sound remotely plausible? Well, I think the gist is true. I cannot vouch for the dollar amount unless I get a doctorate in statistics, so I'll get back <laughs> to you in a few years. But it's definitely true that it would help. Uh, and, and I also think, my kids will kill me for saying this, but that summer vacation should be shorter. That would help our economy. And <laughs> wow. By the way, since I am a fact checker, I did have to check, and, and the U.S. funeral industry does account for about $20 billion in economic activity. Oh. So, so, so we'd have to subtract your nine from that <laughs> oh, 20. this is morbid. This Not is such morbid. a big win anymore, is it, Marco? Marco Hafner, thank you so much for playing. Thank, Tell thank me something I don't know. Great job. It is time now for a quick break. When we return, more guests will make Alex Wagner tell us some things we don't know. If you would like to be a guest on a future show or attend a future show, please visit TMSIDK.com. You can follow us on social media at TMSIDK underscore show. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our fact checker is AJ Jacobs, and tonight's co-host is Alex Wagner. Before we get back to the game, we have some lightning round questions Ooh. written especially for you, Alex Wagner. You ready? Fantastic. Very yeah. much so. Okay, here we go. Your Twitter bio says you are, quote, a person trying hard to finish a book. What's the problem? <laughs> I had no idea that books were so damn long. <laughs> I am writing a book. It is, it is actually, I will say, nearing completion. We are going into galleys, which is a terrifying concept. But I've been working on it for three and a half years, which is a really long time in, in television world. And is it a memoir to some degree? It is to some degree a memoir. It's about immigration, identity, and there are Neanderthal percentages oh, in it, actually much like AJ's book. There you go. Well, we all look forward to reading that. 
Uh, Alex, as noted earlier, you grew up in a very democratic household with your mother, Sway Thant, and your late father, Carl, who was a political consultant who also co-chaired Bill Clinton's 1992 campaign. Pretend, however, for a second that somehow, maybe as a teenager, you saw the light and became a Republican. How would you have gone about telling your parents? I would write a note and pack all my belongings because I would never be allowed (laughs) in the house again. As we heard, your husband, Sam Cass, former White House chef, is he actually good (laughs) at cooking or is that just a thing you can get away with at the White House? Uh, He is a very good chef and he is a very fast chef, Mm. which matters in the White House. Name something that you make better than him, however. I make better meatballs, spaghetti and meatballs. Good to know. Any day of the week. Come on over, guys. If you could host or co-host uh, your own show about anything except politics, what would it be? Uh, the Joy of Painting 2. I'm playing Bob Ross. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, you were a trend forecaster for three years, so considering your training, which I'm sure was extensive in <laughs> trend forecasting, list three trends that we can expect in the next year. Okay. Very specifically, please. Okay, number one. Uh, drop waist MC Hammer harem pants. Get ready for them. <laughs> Number two, crokies. Do you guys remember them? The eyeglasses thing, still useful. Yeah, okay. Number three, bone up on how to launder money for Russian oligarchs, because we're going to be talking about that a lot in 2018. You heard it here first. Ladies and gentlemen, Alex Wagner. Well done. All right, let's get back to the game. Would you please welcome our next guest, Doug Howarth. (laughs) Doug, why don't you tell us uh, where you're from? What do you do? I'm from Los Angeles. I'm the CEO of Multidimensional Economic Evaluators. We, We figure out what things are worth and then we figure out if things are overpriced or underpriced oh. for them. Okay, so you bring, uh, you help firms uh, derive the most value that they can from their business, essentially? Yes, and we also help them figure out where new products should lie. So we mm. find gaps in markets, and it tells you what, where you might be able to place a new product where you wouldn't have any competition. All right, what do you have to tell us tonight, Doug? Why is underpriced beef bad? Why is underpriced beef bad? Bad is yes. your question. Uh, this is this is a podcast sponsored by the Beef Board, isn't <laughs> yes. it? I feel, like, I feel like somehow Big Beef got to our guests yes, right, tonight. Yes. We're and, uh, all on the take for Big Beef <laughs> right. tonight. Um, okay, so I'm assuming here. I mean, beef is an expensive product. When it it's an impactful product in terms of the environment, and it's expensive to grow. It, beef is, finds itself at the nexus of several other industries. Oh, I right? see what so you're saying. So if the pricing is oh. off, yes. it could have repercussions around other industries, right? Okay. It could, and it's got a repercussion in, the, in its own industry. That's what we're getting at here. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the beef wholesale industry. Okay. What, what we've discovered here is that people buy ground beef based on the leanness and package size. Okay. And so we've actually derived an equation that predicts that. That predicts what they want or what they predicts should the, be priced at? Predicts the sustainable price... That's a very important concept in what we do. Sustainable price as a function of that leanness and package size. So people are paying for the convenience of the smaller packages, and they're paying for the leanness of the ground beef. Okay. And at the wholesale level, in January 2012, we discovered one point that was 34 cents a pound under its predicted price. Hmm. Now, it's 34 cents a pound times 290 million pounds. That's a $100 million boo-boo 
that they created because they didn't understand their mm. market. Wholesalers right. are underpricing beef, you're In saying. In January 2012, yes, they had one product underpriced that was a $100 million error because there's so many pounds being sold at that price. What, what industry is most far off base when it comes to pricing? Uh, well, the ground beef was pretty far off, but uh, the aerospace industry is very off based on a lot of things. The, in, in Albuquerque, somebody built a business jet that was only priced at one-third of what it was worth, and they, they lost a billion dollars, and they went bankrupt. And the, had they known what they were doing, they wouldn't have gone bankrupt. Uh, I looked up to see what is the most overpriced industry, and according to some semi-reputable websites, it is uh, movie theater concessions. Mm. But isn't that uh, where they make markup, all their money? Uh, this says 900%. I don't know about that. I think everybody thinks about this, what, what AJ right. just raised. And we kind of know, like Alex said, well, that's where they make the money. Do you, have you ever done any work in the concession pricing We're industry? starting to look at beer right now. What's the value of a good beer in, you know, the Mojave, California, which is a little small town versus downtown Manhattan? Sometimes you see some beers that are overpriced, and you wonder, would they make more money if they dropped the price? Mm-hmm. And it's very important to yep. figure out where that median point is so that you don't lose money. And that's what this is designed to do. And you each market probably has a different story, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Consumers yeah. in New York are more likely oh, to yeah. pay for overpriced drinks. Yes. Well, that's, the, that's the kind of the whole point, yes. But we get our beef cheap. So it all okay. kind of works <laughs> out in the end. Uh, A.J. Jacobs, Doug, has been telling us about... Um, underpriced beef and a $100 million boo-boo, you said? Uh, do you have anything to support or refute? Uh, well, there, there isn't a huge amount of literature yet online about this, but uh, I did run across the most expensive beef in the world, to continue with the beef theme. Uh, there's a butcher in France who serves a $3,200 rib steak, and he claims that uh, every steak is 15 years old, and kept in deep freeze, and the cows live in forests, and they, sh- they are talked to every day to lower their stress level. AJ, thank you, and Doug Howard, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Nicely done. It's time for one more quick break. When we return, our final guest, and then you, our live audience, will pick a winner that's right after this. Welcome back. Would you please welcome our final guest of the evening, Jonathan Bell. Jonathan Bell, nice to see you. What do you do? I run a brand naming agency. So over the years, we've named some pretty cool stuff. Uh, We named Singular. We named SiriusXM. We named the recent Call of Duty game, Infinite Warfare. Uh, we named One Will, the Airline Alliance. Now, I do have two questions before you even proceed. Number yeah. one, you say you named uh, Sirius XM. Correct. Wasn't that a merger of Sirius and XM? Thank you. I should have clarified. It was, yeah. I, I named Sirius before it merged with XM. Uh, so it was, okay. it was actually called CD Radio. Okay. And, yeah. Um, yeah. and so I was, came in and, and, right. and came up with, came yeah. up with the name Sirius. Because yeah. I was thinking, what were your choices? Yeah. Sirius XM? XM Sirius. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> 
That'll Some be four million yeah. dollars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing I found curious is you introduced yourself and said that you run a, a brand naming consultancy, yeah. but you didn't tell us its name. So, so it took me a long time to figure this out, but my company's called Want, W-A-N-T. Oh, so like that. the idea is that you know, it's a call to action, want branding. But also the premise is that any brand, a brand is really a product that's wanted. It has a desirable component to it. So that's where I came yeah. up with it. I like it, especially in print, but with your lovely British accent, it sounds a little like won't, which is probably not what you were going for. But uh, Everything I say sounds so much better, Stephen. It, it yeah. does. You know. <laughs> you know, there was a study that showed that American assessments of British speakers, basically we overjudge their IQ by about 15%. I think that's about right. Yeah. All right. So you came here to tell us something we don't know. What do you have for us? So when we are creating brand names for product services and companies... What do you think the failure rate is on a naming project? What do you mean by failure rate? So if we generate a list of 50 names, how many of those will fail? What percentage? Based on the uh, Sirius XM story, I'll say 50%. 50%, okay. Alex? 75%. But wait, wait, I have to say, if he's the brand naming guy... I know. It must be like... Uh, 101%. Yeah, That's not so a real it's been thing. like 98%. Yeah. Like, what, what have you named in your life? Did you name My your kid? My son, and I still can't believe we named him. I'm like, God, we got to do that and we didn't have to apply for a license. <laughs> What's his name? Sigh. Don't say anything negative. <laughs> um, so, Jonathan, do you have kids? I'm curious. I do. What are their names? Uh, Lucas and Louisa. Hmm. Mm. Did, did you pay someone for those names? Um, <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. I let uh, my wife pick the decision. Oh. See? Yeah. All right. So we've been uh, sniffing around at a number that we think is somewhere between, let's say, 0 and 99. We've, yeah. we've yeah. narrowed it down there. <laughs> what, would you, what is the actual failure So it's about rate? 95%. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. It's a very high percentage in terms of failure rate because you've got so many names out there. You've got trademark issues. You've got URLs. Um, I think there's something like 170,000 words in an English dictionary, real words, and something like 300 million companies or company brands. So do the math, right? Are there trademark trolls like there are patent trolls? In Silicon Valley, there are a lot of people just lock up patents. Are people locking up trademark names? You can't lock up a trademark because you have to demonstrate use. It's not like buying a URL. Mm. So there's a lot of complexities and nuances of trademark law, which is why trademark lawyers exist to solve some of those, those issues and challenges. Yeah. What's harder to name, a, a company or a product? I would say a company, just because you've normally got more stakeholders, more people that need to put their fingerprints on it and have an opinion. Um, typically, companies have much longer you know, durations. Products get named further sort of down at the management ranks, whereas everyone can be aligned on a final name, and you walk into the CEO's office, and they might say... Don't like it. What else you got? And then you're back to square one. So it's very, very, very difficult. Which industry spends the most naming its products? I think of the pharmaceutical industry as one that must spend a lot. Yes, it does. Because pharmaceutical naming is very, very complex. Because not only do you have to surpass and make pass the hurdle rates of trademarks, the FDA actually will needs to approve your final brand name. And the reason is because um, people can die if they're given the wrong prescription drug. Therefore, that there's a higher hurdle rate in terms of making sure the pharmaceutical brand is distinctive and unique versus everything else. That's why mm. you see these really crazy, weird 
Six faultier. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. There, were, there was a situation back in the early 90s, I think, where there were two drugs on the market, Losec, L-O-S-E-C, and Lasix, L-A-S-I-X, mm. and someone died but because they got the, the wrong prescription drugs. So they were, the FDA forced Losec to change its name mm. to Prilosec, right? Ah. Uh, what's yeah. the ideation process for the pharma naming very complicated. I mean, you've got to understand some of the science. Um, you know, you've got to be very careful about not making false claims. You can't call, call, call something like cure, cure perfect. You can't say the drug's going to work. In terms of the industry that you find gets your creative juices flowing the most, it sounds like obviously pharma's really difficult. But is there one where you're like, oh, we have a fashion client and this is going to be fun to do because the process is... Yeah, I mean, cars are pretty cool. Um, we've just named seven cruise ships for Royal Caribbean and Celebrity Cruise Really? Lines. But the what cruise are ships are always like Swedish princess and like Norwegian no, 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 queen. No, no. no so, so we, we, we worked for two years with Royal Caribbean and we named uh, Quantum, yeah. Anthem, Ovation. Okay. And then we just named another ship Harmony. So that's the biggest thing I've ever named. I mean, these things are huge. What do you think when you see a car company like Audi names its models like A6 and A7? Does that just make you feel like a, a barber walking around in Haight-Ashbury, San Francisco and can't get your hands on <laughs> well, them? not really, because there's actually a lot of wisdom to that. that oh, what, come on. No, it's true. You know, a car name with some acronymics afterwards. Yeah puts all the emphasis back on Audi. When you're a Ford and you've got Explorer and you've got a dozen or two dozen different names, that sort of takes away from the Ford name and means you've got to build equity in those different car brands. And, and Jonathan, quick question. How do you rate the name Tell Me Something I Don't Know? Kind of long. Hence the reason why it turns into an acronym. <laughs> AJ, Jonathan Bell is telling us that naming things for business for commercial purposes is very difficult, high rate of rejection, et cetera, et cetera. Anything to dispute yeah, that? I think that's, that's very true. And also there's another problem he didn't mention, which is that how brand names translate in other languages. And there are many examples. Perhaps the most famous example of this is Chevrolet introduced their car Nova to South America, but in Spanish, Nova means no va, as in it doesn't go, it doesn't work. So it's a huge to that. But wait, actually, it sold just fine. Everyone says, oh, here's an example of the the stupidity of corporate America. But uh, actually, it it sold fine because I guess there are a lot of ironic car buyers in South America. (laughs) AJ, thank you so much. And Jonathan Bell, thanks so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Can we please give one more hand to all our guests tonight? Great stuff all around. It is time now for our live audience to pick a winner. But first, Alex Wagner, AJ Jacobs, and I will each weigh in with our favorites. Remember the three criteria. Did our guests tell us something we really did not know? Was it worth knowing? And was it demonstrably true? So, Alex, I'm curious to know what particularly intrigued you tonight. I mean... Look, did I know that teens not being able to sleep in was costing the U.S. economy $9 billion? No. I did not know that there was a $3,200 rib steak. I, I, I got to go with Sam Garwin, though, because I did not know there were 200 pounds of ground mm. beef on the average yeah. bovine carcass. It kind of makes you feel that even after you eat a big burger, that you should eat a lot more. It's just the tip of the iceberg. It's literally just the tip of the iceberg. Er. AJ Jacobs, what tickled you tonight? 
Uh, well, I was, I was delighted with many of them. Uh, Jonathan Bell, I thought, was interesting, partly because I have a son named Lucas, and he has a son named Lucas. So this is a huge relief, because if my son ever complains, <laughs> I can tell him this is the scientifically correct name for a boy. Yeah. <laughs> I found Doug Howarth's um, presentation so compelling, because I love to know that there are people out there trying to determine, through means that I cannot begin to understand, where things should be priced, because I think that's a pretty important and interesting thing. But listen, our votes are non-binding. You are the people who have the real vote. So it is time now for you to take out your phones, follow the texting instructions on the screen. Okay, so who will it be? Sam Garwin with Carcass Balancing. Marco Hafner with Why You Should Let Teenagers Sleep Even More Than They Do. Doug Howarth with The Law of Value and Demand, we'll call it. Or Jonathan Bell with How to Name a Brand. While our live audience is voting, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, please spread the word. Give it a nice rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to listen to the show without ads, sign up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tell me. Thank you. Okay, the audience vote is in. Once again, thanks to all our guest presenters. Our winner tonight, thank you so much for telling us about Carcass Balancing Sam Garwin. Congratulations. Sam, to commemorate your victory, we'd like to present you with this certificate of impressive knowledge. It reads, I, Stephen Dubner, in collaboration with Alex Wagner and A.J. Jacobs, do solemnly swear that Sam Garwin told us something we did not know, for which we are eternally grateful. And that is our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you did not know. Huge thanks to Alex and A.J., to our guests, and thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. On the next Tell Me Something I Don't Know, John McWhorter joins me as co-host for a show about bugs, bugs of every variety you can imagine. I have often found slugs to be uniquely disgusting creatures. I see them coming out of the garden, and it reminds me of what one advantage might be of dying. (laughs) That's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Rachel Jacobs, Nathan Rossborough, and David Herman, who also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on TMSIDK.com. You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>